My name is Jarvis Masters. I've been in San Quentin since 1981 and on death row since 1990. I'm a condemned prisoner. I've been in East Block uh, maybe 12 years. I spent 20-something years in isolation confinement in the adjustment center. I'm 58 years old. I'm innocent. And that's basically it. I'm Dominic Fracasa, and on Fifth and Mission today, an interview with a death row inmate at San Quentin, California's worst COVID-19 hotspot. Jarvis Masters has watched his fellow inmates die, and he's suffered from the disease himself. Masters has been at San Quentin since 1981 and on death row since 1990, after he was convicted in the killing of a prison guard. He maintains his innocence, and his appeal got a boost from a ruling last year by the California Supreme Court. There's a podcast about his case and appeal called Dear Governor, which you can hear wherever you get Fifth and Mission. He's also the subject on an upcoming book by author David Sheff called The Buddhist on Death Row. COVID-19 ripped through San Quentin in early June after a catastrophic error by state and federal officials. They transferred 121 infected men from the prison in Chino. More than 2,000 San Quentin prisoners and 300 staff have become infected. 19 inmates have died, including 10 who were on death row. Masters says he watched as several of the prisoners on his tier died, including his next-door neighbor. He also got sick himself, and he describes his case as very painful. Chronicle reporter Jason Fagoni interviewed him by phone on Friday. That's something that wasn't possible for a while, as prison officials cut off phone access. You'll hear about that in the interview. You'll also hear about Master's diagnosis. He was kept in his cell because any areas where he might have been isolated were already full. Here's Jason Fagoni's interview with Jarvis Masters via telephone from Death Row, the East Block at San Quentin. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. So even before um, you got sick and before you tested positive, when did you... I mean, I guess, when did you first become aware that there was an outbreak, that the virus was in the prison and people were getting sick? Well, I mean, it was uh, the first thing was a rumor that people, inmates from CIM, that came down here and that they were still sick. And um, the correctional officers started talking about how more and more numbers are being inflicted with, I mean, in Affected with this disease, and then you saw um, you heard about people in East Block getting real sick, you know. And then from there, the news start putting it out there, you know, 100, 150, 200, 500, 700, you know. And then in the news, uh, television news, radio news were really, really, yeah, they they began to stress me out because I couldn't imagine you know, all this kind of number. Then it got to a thousand and then fifteen hundred and you know, at at some point, you know, um you begin to think that, you know, how do I get around this? This is not something that's not you know, no matter what I do, this is not something that I don't think I can avoid, you know. So I started to feel like that but I never thought that, you know, um it would do what it did to me personally, you know. I knew that I was going to, I had already convinced myself that I was going to let it go through me as a just a meditation way of thinking about it. Hmm. Uh, 
and then it it came, it arrived, and um, once I knew I was sick, I kind of, I was, you know, I was trying to figure out, if I tell these people I'm sick, what are they going to do, you know? And I sort of felt like I knew what they were going to do, and I was rejecting that idea. Uh, they weren't going to try to isolate me, which they didn't do. I didn't know how many people were sick at that time uh, or the bed space that they were in trouble with. Uh, and I thought that uh, barring me falling out, they were just going to lay me up and say, you know, give you 15 days or, you know, and see if it gets worse. Uh, but my cough became too bad. I was losing breath. I was playing. It felt like I was inside a swimming pool. Mm. Uh, and I was mm. trying to jump and constantly swim up to the to the surface for air. Mm. And I, I think there was a little bit of panic in that. And I said, wait a minute, you know, I, I can't breathe. This is not right. So that's when I called man down and they came and got me and they um, took me over there to the TT clinic and one of the doctors said, you know what, your oxygen level is at a point where I can do two or three things, two or three things. I can give you a whole bunch of oxygen right here and see if they can come down or I can send you out. Right. You know, to one of the hospitals we're contract we're contracted with. So you know, and he explained to me that you know you don't want a ventilator because there's permanent damage to your lungs and all this other stuff. So, right. He said, you know, that that's that you know, but you know, I can't tell you what to do, but you know, you really don't want that. So let's try the oxygen. So I I spent about two or three hours, four hours with oxygen, and I didn't feel like anything was happening, but I felt safe that I was already uh, thought that I had the virus. So I was put on a certain list that, you know, would identify people who, who they might need to revisit. And in terms of the fear factor, were there other were there other guys in East Block who were refusing to be tested because they thought that they might be punished if they tested positive? That's an interesting question. Um, For the people I knew that I speak to, we felt that they didn't know what they were doing, and that no, why would you go tell them you you're coughing and they don't know what they're doing? I mean, it was full chaos. So we didn't see the benefit of telling them because they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, the incompetence was so outrageous that you wouldn't even want them to even give you a a temperature check because they didn't even know how to do that in that in a way where, you know, you felt like, you know, these are professional people doing it. You know, they felt like guards doing it, you know. So no one wanted to do that. But now for the people I did not speak to, um, you know, the rumors were that they're going to isolate you in a place where you can't talk to nobody. And we knew that that was possible because they had started off putting people in the adjustment center. Um, Right. So, but we didn't know where 
where, where they were talking about. So, so people didn't want to talk. People didn't want to get tested because of that. And then there's this this natural paranoia that people don't like getting tested because we don't know what's going to happen to our tests. We don't know what they're going to do with it. Uh, you sure. know, just you know that kind of stuff. So people people on death row didn't want to go to the adjustment center just because you would have less access to the outside world, less ability to communicate with other people, more isolation. Yeah, it's a hole. Yeah. It's isolation confinement is what you do when you get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. You know, so who wants to go there? And they're sick too. So the guards are more, the guards are more, they're a lot different than they would be in a regular housing unit. You know, they, they, they are more meanful, and that's the word I would find. You know, they're more meanful, hmm. and they don't treat people all together right. So why am I going there when even if I'm sick, they may not think I am sick, you know? Right. Uh, no one wants to go into that kind of environment, you know? You're listening to Jason Fagoni's interview with Jarvis Masters, a death row inmate at San Quentin, California's worst COVID-19 hotspot. We'll have more after a break. This is the kind of journalism you're supporting when you become a San Francisco Chronicle member. Please consider joining at sfchronicle.com slash pod. We'll be right back. One thing I wanted to just, you know, go into this conversation... Yeah, please. Was, uh, was, um, I mean, at some point, you can't continue to blame 121 people who came from another prison. Um, the idea that 122 people came here and, and in, end up infecting the contagion, affecting 2,000 people without some responsibility, some, you know, you know, you can't do it and not think that somebody's been incompetent here. Something could have happened that stopped the spread of this thing. So, you know, okay, yeah, 100 people, 200 people, that's fine. But when you get to 2,000 people, people sleeping in tents and churches and all these other places, there's a level of incompetence here. And I think we need, I would like to ask the people out there to look at that more so than the 121 people because I think... The administration is not being uh, responsible. They're not taking responsibility because of this. Right. You, you, know, you, they, you, they, you they, think they're, they're blaming the 121 people who came from the other prison, from Chino? They're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say that there might have been people who they couldn't have detected that, that, that created uh, the spread of it. That's one way of looking at it. And then they said, well, you know, was nothing we can do, you know? Right. And that's that's not right. That's not right. right. I got guards walking up to my cell with these half max suits on, looking like astronauts. So, you know, I know the level of fear that it creates, but there's no one coming up with any ideas. That's scary. But not only that, the idea that a lot of social groups and activists and people out there who really, really believe letting 8,000 people out of the prison to spread it out, you know, early release, is not going to infect all these low-income communities. Right. I read your piece that you published. Yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and, they, and that's, that's, that's something that 
I don't see the administration or the governor having a good grip on what's going on in here. You know, I, one thing I would like, if I had my choice, that the public public health officials come into San Quentin and look at places like the shower area when there's no ventilation, uh, walk the tears and, and hear and know how much uh, we 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 breathe in each other's air. You know, there's no windows, there's no ventilation, there's nothing allowing people to. Uh, seem like, you know, they're not going to catch it the, the next day, you know? If you don't have a public health official come in, you know, make these statements about what they think should happen, and they're not allowed to come into these units and see what is actually going on, then it's hard for me to think that they're going to get a good assessment without looking at what they're supposed to be trying to understand about what's going on in here. So you haven't seen any outside experts or outside medical folks or outside judicial folks come and no. tour the row? Yeah. No, no. Okay. Not even psychiatrists and psychologists or captains and, you know, no one comes in here now, you know. Hmm. They don't want to come in here, you know. Uh, it's just not some place where they think that they're going to make a difference at, you know. Um, you, you mean at death row as opposed to other parts of the prison? So even when they visit other parts of the prison, they don't visit the row? Oh, I don't know if they even visit other parts of the prison. That would be news to me. But the oh, okay. units that I'm in, the unit I am in, they do not visit. They do not want to come in here. You know, um, it, it's bad. Yeah. It's really, really bad. You know, alarms are going off almost every, I mean, every three hours, alarms going off and, and you know this guy is serious because he doesn't return to himself. You hear about him going to an outside hospital, you know. So these are not false alarms, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you know, there there have been a number of um, of incarcerated people on death row who have died of, of COVID. I, I wonder if you knew any of them, um, or if you if you were aware that you know they were seriously ill at the time and that they were not doing well. Well, everyone who has died has died on my tier, or the tier around me, on the first tier. So. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I had a neighbor who died. I know another guy who, well, he used to be my neighbor. He died. I know another guy, um, Avalis, or, uh, we call him another name, um, who died, and they left his TV on, you know. They're leaving people's TVs on, you know, uh, and it's, it's terrible. You know, you walk by a cell, his TV cell, you know. Uh, wow. You know, you got other guys. I know a guy who died, you know, and his, uh, you can tell he was sitting, you can tell he was laying down. You can tell by the way the bed is, the bunk is. He, he had just got up out of bed, his inhaler's right there, Um uh, they didn't do anything. They haven't went in his cell at all, you know. So it's scary, man. It's like a crime scene. Um, and, hey, like I said, man, it's chaos in this place right now. And no one knows what they're doing. And thousands of people, to just have 2,000-plus people, that's, that's a good indicator. You'll need to hear a lot more about what they know about this place and what they're doing when they get more than half the population 
infected. That's total incompetence. I don't care what people, what excuses they give. It's it's crazy, you know. Um, mm. Mm. For example, can, can, I, I have it. I have it. My neighbor don't have it. What makes me think that I feel he feels safe around me? We're breathing the same air. It's hot. It's stuffy. We go to the same shower. The showers are not clean. How? How, how much? What is his chances of not getting it? Have you seen any difference in the behavior of the corrections officers um, since the peak of the outbreak? Have they been wearing? You said they're wearing hazmat suits, so they're wearing more masks. They're wearing more protective equipment, or are there still guards who don't wear that stuff? Because that was a problem. Well, no, no. When, 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 you know, before they had the mandatory masking, you know, the guards had their little ego things going on, and they had their camouflage green towels wrapped around, you know, looking, you know, like they're in the military or something. But as each one of them, you know. Like, my two tier officers, they went out, they caught it, you know. Um, as they as they start getting getting infected with it, they start, you know, taking it a lot serious. And now they're, you can't, a lot of them you can't tell from a medical person, you know, because they're wearing all the gears and everything. I think right now, I think they're really, they're more upset than we are about that 121 people. They yeah. believe that they yeah they're a lot more angrier than we are absolutely because you know they were they were practicing good hygiene until that happened and now you know they're watching themselves you know get uh, infected. Carver, is there anything else I should have asked you that I didn't? Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about right now? One thing, just this one thing. You know they yeah. had taken the, the state phones from us. Yeah, and, tell, tell me about you know, that. Tell me about that. What, uh, when did they take them, and what, what effect did that have? You know, at first they were sending out these memos. I think they took them last week. I can't. I don't know the exact date, but it's been about 10 days, 12 days. Um, and uh, they had sent us these memos. You know, GTO was giving us free phone calls because they understand that, you know, the coronavirus is keeping people from having contact visits and, we are really there to protect the communication of family members. And, you know, so we was getting these three free phone calls from GTL, and, and everybody was doing what they can to speak to their family. And then, boom, later, they take the phones away saying that they're con- con- contagious. And we're like, is this, is this the best you guys can do, you know? Two months later, three thousand—I mean, two thousand three hundred cases—and now you guys are going to tell me that it's the phones? Is this, this really the best you can do? So, but it, it was compounded with the idea that there was a lot of protests out there, and families were uh, wanting to know what was going on with their loved ones, and people were calling in and calling out, and. Uh, there was this big cry for early release, and you know, and when the narrative didn't seem like it was the prison's narrative that was being printed, they take the phones. So naturally, everyone's thinking that they didn't take them because of uh, they believe that everyone's like uh, health was involved in this because they could have did that weeks ago, months ago. Um, 
but that they wanted to, they wanted to control the narrative, and that created a lot of uh, suspicion. Uh, right. A lot of guys were really, really angry. Who who do we talk to? You know, who can we you know air our grievances to? We couldn't even call our attorneys. So um, that really, really created a lot of tension, and I think the guards really heard that we don't want to be right here. You know, I think the yeah. Guards were, so, so you we think the guards right the guards were supportive of getting the phones back, and it, it looks like you just got phone access back yesterday. I, I think the guards was completely, completely. Uh, Wanting that, not the administration, but the guards. Because you have to understand, on my chair, both my chair, wait, one, two, three, four. Four officers that work this chair, they all was in, uh, uh, infected with it. Two of them came back so far. They didn't understand, not at all, why these phones were being taken, you know. Yeah. And they started to see, and they started to feel the pressure. They started seeing anger. They started seeing frustration. They started seeing. Yeah. They're picking fights because they don't, you know, there's something else going on, you know. Uh, and like I said, I've been here a very, very long time, and I felt, I felt it. I felt, it. I, I knew when they were putting, walking the phones off the chair what this was going to create. I think if that would have kept those phones off the chair for a long time, uh, that would have been very, very, very bad, you know. I, I'm, you know. You're talking about hunger strikes. You're talking about a lot of stuff that people were throwing out there that um, they were conditioning themselves for, you know. So um, that would have been very, very bad. And they probably got a win that people were thinking about going on hunger strikes. Um, you know, that was not, you know, that was not a big secret. That's San Quentin death row inmate Jarvis Masters interviewed by Chronicle reporter Jason Fagoni. Jason's been covering the outbreak at San Quentin along with staff writer Megan Cassidy. You can follow all of that coverage at sfchronicle.com. And you can listen to Jarvis Masters' podcast, Dear Governor, wherever you listen to Fifth and Mission. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. I'm Dominic Fercasa. We'll see you next time.